Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar at all with that song we just did, but, uh, and I certainly, well, I guess I know kind of what your reaction was to it, right? You clapped. I guess that's a good thing. But uh, for me, I got to tell you, there's something about uh, the idea of God being the refuge of my weary soul that uh, is just really comforting. In fact, this verse in particular, you know, but oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. And there are two words in that particular uh, verse, fear and trust, that I think are linked directly to the topic that uh, I want to talk to you about this morning. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, you can open them to the New Testament to Galatians chapter 5. And um, uh, if, in case you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Two Ways to Live, in which we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit as it's referred to in Scripture. And we started talking, uh, we started the study talking about uh, the importance of spiritual uh, reflection, you know, personal uh, evaluation. Uh, I mentioned how in his award-winning book, Renaissance, uh, respected Christian author and thinker Oz Guinness says that as Christians, all too often we have set out high, clear statements of the authority of the Bible, but flout them with lives and lifestyles shaped more by our own sinful preferences and by modern fashions and convenience. He says, all too often we've attacked the evils and injustices of others while we've condoned our own sins, turned a blind eye to our own vices, and lived captive to materialism and consumerism in ways that contradict our faith. And I think he's right. As hard as those words are to hear, I think he's right. And so Guinness calls us in the church to spiritual self-assessment, you know, to, to take an honest look at our lives and how we live every day. Because here's the deal. What we do reveals who we are. In his letter to the church, the early church, the Apostle Paul explains that when we experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes into our lives in a real way and begins to transform us, taking us from where we're no longer gratifying the desires of our sinful nature, but he's moving us toward a different type of experience and, and existence altogether. How do we know if that transformation is happening? Uh, Paul says there's tangible evidence. He writes, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And we've noted how all of those things on that list are things that we sense um, are wrong, they're hurtful, they're unhealthy. Uh, by contrast, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's something within our humanness that tells us these things, you know, these things are right, they're healthy, they're beneficial. Uh, this list describes the kind of men and women we're meant to be. I mean, Christians and non-Christians alike not only admire these virtues, uh, but we desire them in ourselves and in others, yet left to our own sin nature, uh, the first list will dominate our lives. The only way to live out the second, to be the men and women God intends us to be, is by the power and, and, and grace of God's Spirit at work in us. So, you see, we, we don't try to change our attitudes and behaviors in order to become Christians. No, our attitudes and behaviors change because we are Christians. You know, we come to Jesus totally messed up. We, do, we just don't stay totally messed up. 
Jesus changes things. God's grace changes things. The Spirit of God changes things. He changes us from the inside out. And uh, Paul describes these changes uh, using fruit as a metaphor. Uh, fruit represents that which grows above ground. It's something everybody can see. Uh, it's the same metaphor that Jesus used when uh, speaking to followers. He said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Now, when Paul uses the term fruit, uh, in the Greek, it's plural, indicating that all the, attending, all the attending virtues here are produced by the Spirit's presence and power in our lives. In other words, it's not just one or two of them. Uh, all are growing and manifesting themselves in increasing degrees. And so far, we've talked about love. Uh, we've talked about joy. And so uh, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the fruit, how the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So let's first, first things first, let's define the term because... For a lot of people, peace um, simply refers to the absence of conflict in our relationships, right? We're not fighting with anybody, and certainly that's kind of part of it. But in fact, I've heard it said that a soul at peace will be at peace with others. Uh, in other words, inner peace leads to outer peace. I think that's true. But it, it, it's this inner peace that the Apostle Paul is really addressing here. Uh, the Greek term that he uses is the term irene, uh, and it refers to a tranquility and quietness of mind that transcends all circumstances, finding its basis in a right relationship with God, resting in his wisdom and sovereignty more than our own. Now, that's a hefty definition, right? But sometimes ancient Greek terms uh, carry a lot more nuance to them than, than we can just reflect in one English term. It's not really a one-to-one uh, equation all the time. And certainly this term has a lot behind it. Uh, but perhaps another way to say it would be to say that peace means nothing completely terrorizes you or freaks you out because uh, you know that God's in control and you know that your relationship with him is right. And so you kind of can relax. In fact, the Greek term that Paul uses here reflects the, uh, the Hebrew concept of shalom, which for uh, Jewish people in the first century was all about health. It was about a harmony of life uh, established and sustained by God himself. So with all that in mind, here's the question. Am I, are you, are we, um, a people at peace, you know, marked, men and women marked by a tranquility of mind no matter what happens to us. In terms of our culture, I'd probably have to say not so much. Uh, for most Americans, life is not marked by uh, a sense of inner peace, but uh, inner turmoil and anxiety more than anything else. And, and look, trust me on this, I'm not, um, I'm not suggesting I'm above this. Like, it's not like, like I'm saying, I never experienced worry or anxiety, because I do. I do. And so I've been asking myself, why is that the case? And while I'm not an expert on it, uh, it seems to me that as Americans, uh, there are at least a couple of barriers that we face when it comes to experiencing genuine peace. The first uh, is what I would refer to as uh, misguided expectations. What do I mean by that? Well, a few weeks ago, my wife Margie and I were downtown at a, at a White Sox game one Saturday night, and um, when we were letting them, we were there lit, when we were getting out with the crowd, pulling out of the parking lot. I mean, it was you know it was all jammed. Everybody was trying to get on the expressway, and so I have this little secret. I scoot out over to State Street and head north up to Congress. At that time of the night, usually it's pretty pretty empty, and I can, we can get out quickly. Um, but this particular night, we did that. We got to State Street, headed north, and it just so happened it was the same night that Lollapalooza. Uh, <laughs> 
was letting out, uh, and so it was a bad idea. Um, we got we got up there, and it was just a mob scene, man. It was there were people everywhere, there were cars everywhere, and I am freaking out. I'm like, we're never gonna get home. Somebody's gonna hit us. I'm gonna run over somebody. You know, I am I'm just bugging. You know, and and I and during that, I just I noticed something interesting. I noticed the taxi drivers around me were like. You know, they got their hands out the window, you know, spinning in and out in here, spinning around, no problems. They, they were just, they, I, I couldn't believe it. They didn't seem concerned at all. And I was thinking, why is that? And I decided it's because um, they basically expect crowds. They expect, you know, traffic jams. They expect uh, conflict and fender benders and, and, and chaos. And so they kind of operate with very little concern. They're kind of calm in, in the midst of the chaos. Uh, me, on the other hand, I am like totally uptight and panicked because I expected to, to drive through the city without a problem. It was just unrealistic. Uh, Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock, talks about the power of our expectations. Uh, and in the book, he, he says, imagine if I were to take you, uh, before I would I'd take you into a, um, an average room in an apartment building, before I take you and I tell you that uh, this is a honeymoon suite, and so I bring you into the average uh, apartment, and you look around and say, this is dumpy, this is, this is intolerable. But if before I took you and I told you it was a prison cell, you'd go in and you would say, this is pretty nice, this is surprising, I could live here, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, it's true. You know, his point being that uh, expectations are everything. They... They act as the filter through which we view, interpret, and respond to life situations. And uh, I think that sometimes as Christians, you know, we lose our, our, our sense of peace, even joy, because we just don't anticipate problems. I mean, sure, sure, uh, bad things are going to happen to you and you and probably some of you back there, but not me. Uh, life is going to be an easy sale for me. Uh, no traffic jams, no health concerns, no financial woes, no relational conflicts, no pain, no loss. I expect life to be trial-free for me. But that's just not realistic, is it? It's not. And to expect that is misguided and eventually quite devastating to any sense of peace, which is exactly why peace cannot be based on circumstances. Um, Listen, Jesus was all about realistic expectations. Um, one day when questioned about tragedy in the world, he said, look, it rains on the, on, the, on, the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, tragedy comes to all of us at some point or another. He said, so in this broken world of ours, uh, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And understand, you know, Jesus' point wasn't for us to walk around all day long filled with doom and gloom, looking for the worst of everything. He was just saying, look, life can be great, but, but be realistic. So what, what are your expectations in life, in your relationships, in your day-to-day -day existence? Because misguided ones um, uh, are a barrier to experiencing true peace. A second barrier is uh, misplaced fear. Uh, a book came out a few years ago called The Science of Fear by a guy named Daniel Gardner. And the basic premise of the book is that America has become a culture of fear in which we're scared of things we shouldn't be scared of and not afraid of things we should be afraid of. 
And uh, as a prime example, he notes how in the 12 months following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, Americans essentially stopped flying and we started driving more because we were afraid of getting hijacked on a plane and being killed in a plane crash. But what few of us realize is that that shift from planes to cars resulted in a soaring number of U.S. highway fatalities. In a short 12 months, more people were killed on U.S. highways and roads than in the five years before 2011 and the five years following. Why? Because statistically, it's more risky to be in a car than a plane. Experts, experts uh, calculated that even if terrorist, attacking, uh, terrorist attacks on planes increased to one commercial flight a month, still a person who flew once a month uh, would only have a, a 1 in 135,000 chance of being killed, which is minuscule compared to 1 in 6,000 when riding in a car. Because we're, we're in cars all the time, right? Do you know that more individuals are killed by car accidents in America every year than by accidental gunshot wounds? And yet many people are, are seriously terrified of gun ownership. In fact, just for the record, more people accidentally drown in swimming pools than die from gun accidents. So what was Gardner's, uh, what was his conclusion? His conclusion was that fear among Americans isn't always rational. If it were, we'd stop driving and swimming in pools. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about how irrational fear uh, has gripped our lives. Um, Business corporations know that, uh, which is why fear, they know that fear is a huge motivator, which is why it's a powerful marketing tool. The message of advertisement being, if you don't buy our product, you're not going to be as happy. Uh, your life is probably going to be miserable with, without us. It's certainly not going to be as good. Some people refer to it as shockvertising. Um, what they really mean is just pushing the fear envelope. I heard someone say recently, uh, fear sells and we're all buying. Uh, the media knows the value of fear. Fear holds attention, and it boosts ratings, which means profit. And then when it comes to fear, politicians are all about inciting it, constantly warning us of dire consequences that we will all suffer if we don't vote for them or support their particular legislation or their particular party or their particular policies. According to Gardner, here's the great irony of our time, that we are, as Americans one of the wealthiest, freest, healthiest, safest nations in the history of the world, and yet we're more afraid than ever before. And we lack a sense of peace and operate out of turmoil and fear. Not only that, he says, we tend to fear the wrong things. Now, Jesus never wrote a New York Times bestseller, and I don't know how he was with statistics. I'm guessing he was quite good, but I don't know that. Uh, but nearly 2,000 years ago, he said very similar things. In fact, uh, uh, where Gardner offers a rational solution, which is to realize that it's never been a better time to be alive, Jesus offered a spiritual solution, which involves getting fear right. In other words, placing it where it belongs. Do you remember how he put it? Uh, when speaking to a crowd of people one day, Jesus put it this way. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body's been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Here, here's my Ray K translation. Jesus was saying, the only thing in this world you really need to be you really need to fear is God himself, the creator, yet who, because of his great love and grace, is willing to have a relationship with you and grant you life everlasting. But here's the thing, you know, not everybody um, reacts well to what Jesus said uh, with this idea of fearing God. 
And we live, part of that is because we live in a, in a culture and at a time when a lot of people believe in God. Over 90% of Americans do. Over 90% of Americans believe in God, and most of them say they want to know and have God to be part of their lives. But when it comes right down to it, uh, the God that many people want is one of their own making. An easygoing deity who they can enjoy, feel good about, define and manipulate. A God who never challenges their thinking or their behavior, who never tells them things that they don't want to hear. Sort of a cosmic buddy who can give them a hand with stuff when they need it, you know. In short, what people don't want necessarily is the true, sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe who cannot, look, he cannot be molded uh, into our image or defined by our imaginations or fooled by our ingenuity or controlled by our fanciful whims. People don't want to know the God who in perfect holiness and justice has the divine authority to judge all who have rebelled against him and sinned against him. Yet that's exactly the God Jesus says we should honor and we should respect for it's the legitimate fear of him that leads to true lasting peace. In fact, uh, immediately after Jesus brought up this whole fear thing, he assured his listeners by saying this. So he says, for those of you who revere God, who fear God, who respect God, he goes, know that you can trust him. You can trust him. He put it this way. He says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Now, in Jesus' day, sparrows were sold in the marketplace, and they were, they were pretty cheap, really. You could get five birds for a couple cents. It was no big deal. They, they, they were relatively insignificant. And yet Jesus says, God knows about those little birds because he cares about the creation, all of creation. If God cares about cheap little birds that were used for food, he says you can be sure that God cares about his greatest creation, human beings, you and me. And that's what Jesus was getting at when he said God knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, at this point I need to point out something. Did you guys know that hair is the fastest growing tissue in the body? Did you guys know this? It's fascinating. It's the fastest growing tissue in the body. The average head has approximately 150,000 strands. A single strand um, can support 100 grams of weight, which means a full head of hair could, in theory, support the weight of two elephants. Incredible, isn't that? And hair, I readily admit, can look beautiful. Some people, some people think that. Um, but it's culturally overrated, really. <laughs> It's cold. Don't be that impressed because you know what hair is, right? Once it leaves the root, it's nothing but dead follicles lubricated by glandular oil forced, forced up through the scalp as nothing more than inorganic cellular material. That's, that's why it doesn't hurt when you cut it because it's dead stuff. It's waste material. So in just my opinion, hair looks great and... Uh, if you guys want all that dead, funky, oily, <laughs> inorganic material, material, cellular waste, you know, clinging lifelessly to your scalp, go for it. And if you ladies want to run your fingers through 150,000 strands of a guy's greasy, oily, discarded waste, be my guest. Who am I to judge? I just choose otherwise. Now, in case if you're, you're wondering, uh, in case you're wondering, this is not about... Um, Hair envy. It's really not. It's science. Okay, this is science, folks. 
And it's not about a, a random Ray K rant. It's really not. There is a point to it. So I know what you're thinking. Get to the point. Okay, here's the point. Knowing what you know now about hair, thank you very much, uh, think about this. If God cares about insignificant birds that serve as food, <laughs> and if God knows the smallest detail of your life, including how many stalks of dead cellular material, material on your head and how many comb out in the sink in the morning, which ones get cut by a stylist and which ones have been Grecian formulated, right? He knows. What does that tell you? It tells me that God intimately knows and cares about each of us and everything about us. That's the point. And if he cares that much, then you can trust him. You don't need, you don't need to be scared of anything or anyone as long as you're right with God. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are worth much more to God than many sparrows. In other words, don't fear man. Don't fear circumstances. Don't fear the grave. Fear, revere, honor, respect God and trust him because he cares for you and he loves you. Again, Jesus summarized it this way. In a world where you tend to fear the wrong things, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. And then he said this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Peace I give you. See, these words of Jesus uh, set the foundation for what the Apostle Paul is saying in Galatians 5, namely that when we put our faith in Jesus, by grace, our relationship with God is made right, we're, we're rescued from evil, our sins are forgiven, our future in heaven is, is secured, and the Spirit of God comes into our lives and, and produces peace, a tranquility and quietness of mind that transcends all circumstance. Now, in theory, that all sounds great, right? But I'm, I'm thinking about it this week, and... Uh, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this sounds good on paper. It sounds good coming out of your mouth. But what, is, what does peace really look like? What does this peace look like in practical terms? How does it play out? How does it express itself as, as fruit in our lives? And I'll tell you a way it, it, it plays out. I recently lost a very good friend to cancer. And his battle uh, with the disease from start to finish was about six and a half months. And during that time... The way he handled himself as a follower of Jesus was absolutely inspirational to me. Um, after the initial shock of the diagnosis, he continued to say, I have an, an incredible and an amazing amount of peace about this. He says, Nothing, it's not that I feel good about having cancer. He says, but I'm trusting God that he knows what he's doing. And I really, I really have, have a peace about it. And he never, he never changed the whole time saying anything different. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the conversations we, ha we, we had around that. And because of those conversations, because of his, because of his life, uh, and I can see and understand what the spirit-produced peace actually looks like, what it means. It means that in, in whatever situation we find ourselves in life, that in an ever-increasing degree, by the power and presence of God's spirit working, working in us, we're trusting in God's wisdom and sovereignty more than our own. You know, Believing, as the Apostle Paul says, that in all things God works for the good, ultimately the good of those who love him. And that peace 
Peace means we're trusting in God's awareness that he sees and understands everything we're going through, the good, the bad, the in-between. Nothing in our lives goes unnoticed. As the psalmist writes in the Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And finally, peace means we are trusting in God's ability to rescue us and ultimately give us life everlasting. And so here's the deal. In a world that is so fearful, this kind of trust, this kind of peace doesn't always make sense to people. And I tell you what, it doesn't always make sense to me, which is why I suppose Paul uh, describes this peace of God as something that doesn't just transcend circumstances, it transcends human understanding. It's not something that we just muster up through human effort. It's something that evidences God's spirit within us. And since we're on the topic, do you know what another barrier of peace is? Religious legalism. Uh, don't forget, Paul wrote this letter for a reason. He wrote to the early church because some false teachers were going around the churches telling people that, you know, belief in Jesus is all well and good, but it's not enough. Faith alone won't get you into heaven. They, they were from a Jewish background, and they were saying, you've got to keep Jewish ceremonial law to be complete Christians. And people were being influenced by these men who were imposing a new type of you know, performance-driven religion, a Jesus-plus-works proposition. They said, look, if you don't follow our system of rules and rituals and regulations, you won't merit eternal life. I mean, you talk about inciting fear and turmoil. These false teachers were wreaking havoc in the churches, and it just created, you know... Uh, serious divisions because suddenly Jewish believers felt religiously superior because they understood Jewish law. The, the Gentiles believers did not, and so they felt inferior and discriminated against, and so there was fiction, uh, friction and hard feelings and conflict, and what started out as a community of grace and love was being destroyed. But understand, that's what legalism always does. It's what it does. It obliterates grace and breeds competition, judgmentalism, Jealousy, envy, bitterness, uh, anger, and hatred. And as a result, it not only kills, kills love, it, it kills joy. Because in the context of legalism, man, faith is a burden. It's hard work. It's hard work. You're never sure if you've been good enough to make it to heaven. And that concern, you know, leads to worry and, and doubt and, and inner turmoil. See, not only does legalism kill love and joy, it eliminates any sense of true peace. Because there's no peace in works-oriented religion. Only guilt, insecurity, and anxiety. And Paul's goal in writing this letter was to remind his friends that biblical Christianity brings a completely different message, uh, unique to all of the religions on earth. It alone offers good news. Good news that our eternal rescue has nothing to do with human performance. Nothing but has everything to do with the grace of God, who's all about love, joy, and peace. And when we experience uh, this grace through faith in Jesus, who gave himself for us, sacrificed himself for our sins to rescue us and give us life, the Spirit of God comes and begins to transform and produce tangible, experiential, uh, observable evidence of his power and presence in our lives and relationships. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. A tranquility and quietness of mind that transcends all circumstances and human understanding, finding its basis in a right relationship with God, resting in his wisdom and sovereignty more than our own. That's true peace. Do you have it? I hope you do. Let's pray together.
Our Father, it is so ironic how we, I think we have to admit, we do live in, in one of the safest, wealthiest, comfortable um, nations of the world, and yet um, we're more fearful than ever before. Perhaps we fear of losing what we have. Perhaps we have unrealistic uh, expectations on life. Um, whatever the case is this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would help us to see the reality of our existence. You would help us recognize how true peace can't be found in circumstances because the, our lives are so, uh, they're just so up and down all the time. That, sure, the, our world is a wonderful place to be, beautiful, wondrous, um, but at times it can, be, it can be troublesome and there can be tragedy and, and loss and that's just the reality of life in a broken world. And so peace can't be found in circumstances, not true peace. It can only be found in knowing you, the God of peace, who because of your love and grace and through Jesus have offered us forgiveness and life that we cannot earn, therefore we cannot lose. And I pray this morning that you would help us grasp hold of that reality. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we haven't talked about yet in our study is how these fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all reflect the nature of God. God of love, joy, and peace. The idea being that as followers of Jesus, more and more our lives are beginning to look like His. And um, so next week we're going to talk a little bit more about this. We're going to take a look at the next aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. I hope you can join us. Um, and... Um, if this whole idea of Christianity is new to you um, and you want to ask, talk to somebody about it, following the service, our prayer team folks will be down here in the front uh, for you. You can come down and they're glad to chat or pray with you or whatever. But uh, why don't you stand with me? I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Be safe. Let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed, okay? And now, Lord, I pray that as we leave the building, as we go back out into our lives, as we go out into a life in a world that is, is so beautiful and wonderful uh, and good a lot of the time, we recognize it can also be a, a world of trouble and chaos and brokenness and loss. So may we go with, with realistic expectations, but may we go fearlessly, uh, honoring you with our lives, revering you as our God, and giving you thanks for what you've done for us in Jesus and for your grace. And um, as we live our lives this week as loving, joyful, peaceful people, may we point people to you, our God. May your hand of grace and love now rest on, on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week.